Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we're bringing this to you a day earlier than usual. We're recording it Monday night. You'll have it Tuesday morning because, frankly, such is the pace of what's going on in Westminster around the future of the government that we, frankly, don't dare wait another 24 hours because we could be out of date. We might even, as things are going, we might even have a new prime minister by then. I, think, I don't think we'll have a new chance. I think Jeremy Hunt's there for a bit. But anyway, before we get on to all of that, we have some good, hopefully, for two and a half thousand of you, some good news. You may have heard, in fact, you will have heard because I was boasting about it all week. We sold out our live date at the London Palladium in seven minutes. I had told them, Rory, I said to them, <laughs> book the O2 or book the Wembley Arena. But no, 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 they didn't listen. They went for the Palladium. Uh, we haven't managed, Alistair did not manage to persuade us to play to an empty Wembley Stadium. Um, But we are going to do another night at the Palladium. Uh, So the night before our original date, Tuesday, March 21st. So all the people who missed out on tickets, we've gone back to the theatre and they have provided tickets for the night before. So please sign up and hopefully uh, in the first nine minutes for Tuesday, March 21st. Yeah. So this is what you need to know. Uh, As per the last time, when it was for March the 22nd, 700 have been reserved for subscribers to The Rest is Politics Plus. And for those of you who don't know, if you join TREP Plus, you can support the show, get all the pods without adverts for £3.49 a month, and you get access to early tickets, etc. And to sign up for that, you go to therestispolitics.com. The tickets for those members will be on sale from Wednesday morning, 9am. And just to mark your card, they sold out pretty quickly as well. We'll email all members the link for tickets. Please check your spam. And then all remaining tickets will go on sale on Friday morning at 9am. We'll tweet the link on Friday first thing. So that's that. That's the housekeeping done. Um, Let's get on with talking about what happened today. Um, God, where do you start? Where do you start? I suppose you start with Jeremy Hunt. Yes. So, um, for, again, for, for in my, in my boring role, for listeners who haven't been following every minute of what's going on, um, he's come in. And as Alistair keeps saying, he is basically the new prime minister and he's the new prime minister because he is the only thing that she is now relying on to try to reassure the markets that everything that she said, but three weeks ago, with the single exception possibly of a national insurance tax change has been thrown out the window. And he has set out systematically to reverse everything that she tried to do. So uh, I think maybe the top headline things just before we get into the details are that he has, he will not be cutting income tax. So that's neither the cut for top rate taxpayers from 45 to 40, nor the cut for uh, basic rate taxpayers from 20 to 19%. He's going to be raising corporation tax. And that cumulatively will make about £35 billion. But perhaps most importantly of all, he said that the energy price subsidy is only guaranteed for six months, which means instead of an unlimited liability of you know, £150 billion potentially, he's now reduced that down to something which feels more like a black hole in his finances of £40 or £50 billion. 
Um, and then, and this is, I think, the thing that we're going to have to get into, that's probably going to have to be addressed through spending cuts. Anyway, over to you, Alistair. Well, it was, I watched the whole thing and I watched, I also watched Keir Starmer's Urgent Question, where Liz Truss did not turn up and Penny Morden was sent in. And I didn't think Penny Morden did a very good job, actually. I think she was too much in Tory party mode and not enough in cabinet minister mode. And she kept saying repeatedly that there was a very good reason why the prime minister couldn't be in the house. There was a very good reason why the prime minister couldn't face the question. She didn't say, look, she's got better things to do than get hauled in to be, you know, play politics with Keir Starmer. She sort of, I even began to wonder whether something genuinely serious had happened, like, you know, a, a family situation, something, some terrible tragedy, because she kept saying, I, I wish I could tell you what she, why she wasn't here, but I can tell you it's a very good reason. And then she finishes. Um, I thought Keir landed a couple of good blows on them. Um, and as she finishes, Jeremy Hunt walks in, and then moments later, Liz Truss walks in, and Therese Coffey shuffles up, and Liz Truss sits there. It was all a bit surreal, to be absolutely frank. And I think what you saw was a prime minister sitting there, utterly devoid of authority, and Jeremy Hunt standing up, pretty much as he's done his interviews in the last 48 hours when he's been on the airwaves, barely referencing her, and essentially, without saying, I am completely reversing everything that this prime minister sitting behind me has done, that's what he did. He didn't reverse the banker's bonus. Um, he didn't reverse the investment zone stuff. Um, but on the main tax stuff, he was absolutely unequivocal. That's gone. I wonder on the investment zone stuff, because there's a lot of wriggle room there too, because I think he can pretend that he's backing her. But what he'll be under pressure from the Treasury to do is to say instead of what she was talking about, which is an unlimited number of investment zones, which would lose mm. them tens of billions of pounds worth of revenue, I guess he's going to quietly shut it down. So there are going to be almost none of them at all. Well, also, Caroline Lucas, um, the Green Party MP, she, who I think is a very effective uh, performer in the House of Commons, and she got up and basically said, you know, what's happened to your Green Tory credentials? You've always presented yourself as a Green Tory. Um, and in his answer, he sort of said, well, I'm not against investment zones, but they absolutely have to be in keeping with uh, nature, biodiversity, etc. So you're right. He might, he might be sort of. <laughs> well, that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Isn't it? Cause that's presumably exactly what Liz Truss was not intending with those investment zones. She wanted to rip up planning. She wanted, to, she felt when she was the Secretary of State for Environment, Food, Rural Affairs that mm. there was too much restrictions, you know, newts getting in the way of building. I remember her complaining about that. I remember her actually almost setting up a newt task force to try to work out how we could build more houses without worrying about newts. So is it a ple please, t please tell me that's not true. No, no, it's totally true. Totally she true. She wanted to set up a new uh, Well, actually, I think to be, to be fair, it was driven from the centre of Downing Street in those days. She was responding to something that obsessed Oliver Letwin, David Cameron, because what would happen in those days is that the discovery of a newt um, would be enough to grind all development to a halt. And this became the sort of totemic issue where people kept saying that newts weren't that rare and we didn't need to worry that much about newts. And then obviously the, the the charities that cared about nature would say, no, newts are incredibly important. Then other people would say newts only got on the European directive by mistake because there was mm. a shortage of newts in Poland and we didn't have a shortage of newts in Britain, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the point though is that that must have been a real slap in her face to hear him stand up and say, of course, it's got to respect biodiversity and nature and all this kind of thing. I think she might have disappeared by then. And then the other, the other thing doing the rounds, of course, is that 
she was in and out of a meeting with Graham Brady, who'd been in the House, then went out of the House. And of course, he's the chairman of the 1922 committee. There's all this talk for all the fact that there was, honestly, it was it was horrific to watch, particularly the urgent question. I don't think there was one question from the Tory backbenches that you would have put in the even vaguely anything other than completely pro-government sycophantic. It was like watching endlessly planted questions. You got a few in in Hunt's statement, particularly from people like um, Edward Lee, John Redwood, who are obviously Drax, the, the, the right-wingers who are really worried that this kind of low-tax, no-regulation agenda is now being lost. But basically, Hunt kind of, he, he, he look, and, and, uh, you know, fair play to him. He's got a very balming B-A-L-M, very balming manner. Um, but, you know, the truth is he was, he was essentially saying, fasten your seatbelts because we're going to probably have further tax rises and we're going to have very, very big spending cuts. And he didn't go into the, well, the other thing he didn't uh, reverse was bankers' bonuses. He defended that. He said the more money they get, the more tax they'll pay. Um, and also he, he, he was, he was not, I thought he might at least have paid a little bit of lip service to some of the kind of wealth areas that labor are looking at, whether it's non-DOM taxes or, um, you know, some of the kind of stuff that you, that he could get into. I still think tax avoidance is such a big issue that he could have got into that. He didn't. So we're looking, we are looking at austerity mark too. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that now. And, and actually it's an interesting, I mean, I think it's an interesting point to sort of consider what options labor really has other than a form of austerity themselves, because the situation that Britain's now in makes it almost impossible for the government to continue to spend and borrow. And so the only choices facing, I mean, I, actually, I, I think this is something that should appeal to you, Alistair, because famously, you're a man who's never in debt, and as a fine Scot, always believes in balancing your budget. <laughs> um, but the options facing the government, any government, are now incredibly tough. Because mm. it's not the United States. We're not the world's reserve currency. We can't borrow huge amounts of money. And if we do borrow, interest rates are now punishing. So the interest we pay on our debt is going to be phenomenal. If we start borrowing serious amounts of money, we'll be spending $80, $100 billion, $100 billion pounds simply on the mm. interest of the debt if we borrow big. Um, so labor is going to have to come in and their only option if they want to increase spending, and they'll be under a lot of pressure too, the unions will expect them to increase spending, inflation's up 10%, will be to increase taxes dramatically. Mm -hmm. But taxes are now at their highest level since the 1950s. Yep. And it's, it's going to be very, very tough. There may be some things they can do maybe on more windfall taxes on the energy companies, we'll bring in some more money. Mm -hmm. But the amount of money they're going to get by going after non-DOMs is not going to fill the, the hole in the budget. No, not non-DOMs. I mean, you're talking a very, very small number of billions. And um, I think, look, I, I think it, it would be a particularly perverse approach to politics if at the end of these three weeks, where the Conservatives have literally crashed the economy, it would be perverse if the, if the burning question out of today was what does a Labour government do? A Labour party in opposition has to have those questions answered but as they get closer to a general election. I think it will have to involve at some stage standing up and defending uh, a real, uh, you know, whether they are going to revisit the idea of wealth tax and so forth, I don't know. Um, but I think that this is, I, I, what I found astonishing about today, both the urgent question fronted by Mordaunt and Jeremy Hunt, was the mood amongst conservatives who really do, they really did seem to think that they just kind of need to move on now. It was almost like Penny Morden. I really found her performance quite disgraceful, actually. 
She was all, it was almost like, you know, what right does Keir Starmer have to try and summon the prime minister to talk about this when we've got the chancellor coming to talk, talk to us? I've seen it before, though. I mean, I, I saw it when Theresa May was in real trouble. I, we mm. saw it when Boris Johnson was in real trouble. Do you remember that extraordinary moment where he went into prime minister's questions about 24 hours before he resigned? And they were all standing up. You know, people you were expecting would criticize him, like Johnny Mercer, were standing up and lobbing him softball questions. And the whips had clearly been running an operation to get everybody to come out and support him. What it really is actually is not a sign that they've moved on. It's a sign of absolute desperation. I mean, this is this is what parties do when they're absolutely against the wall. And this will be a last sort of desperate whipping operation where they will have gone around person to person promising anything they can give. I mean, that's what Boris was doing in that final PMQs, promising jobs to people, anything to get them to give him softball questions. Well, you mentioned Johnny Mercer there. We put, I, I do, as you know, this interview for Men's Health magazine, and we've done one, I've done one with Johnny Mercer. And he's somebody who's had OCD for most of his life, um, gets depression, and was actually, when we were speaking uh, last week now, we put it out because, frankly, a lot of it was about the current government and, you know, Liz Trust might not be there very long. But he basically said that he was now in a place where he felt that he couldn't, in all honesty, say to his constituents, I think a trust government would be better than a government led by Keir Starmer. And he also said that he felt that people had just given up. They weren't even getting angry anymore. They'd just sort of given up. And I think there is that sense maybe that a lot of Tories are starting to think, you know what, we've had our time, we've had 12 years, the country's not much better. And this last thing has just been a kind of tipping point. It's been a huge tipping point. They crashed the economy. But he also told a story that I think people would be quite shocked by, which is that he'd, he'd gone into politics to fight for veterans. He's a veteran himself, been in three tours of Afghanistan, in the commandos. And he was made a minister. To, then he resigned. Then Johnson put him in the cabinet at the last minute. That was never going to last. But he persuaded Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak that they wouldn't downgrade the veterans minister's job. And when she became prime minister, she called him in to see her and told her, told him that she wasn't going ahead with her promise. And he said the thing that really got to him was that she just laughed at him when he protested. She just sort of thought it was funny. And I thought that said something very, very odd about the way she deals with people. So one of, one of the things that will, is, is worth thinking about is, is where these cuts are going to fall. Slightly relates to your conversation about Johnny Mercer, because almost certainly the cuts are going to fall hard on defence. And one of the promises that Liz Truss made to keep Ben Wallace, and it's Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, was uh, actually probably a very strong runner to be prime minister and for some reason didn't stand. But he chose to use his position as defence secretary and his endorsement to get all the candidates essentially to sign up to increase defence spending up to 3%. Very, very dramatic increase. Used to be 2%. So that's a sort of extra nearly £40 billion a year that you're talking about of increases. And of course, this was off the back of Russia-Ukraine, and this was about Britain as a global power. But I think the first thing that will happen is she will have to break that promise too, because I don't think it's going to be remotely possible for this government or any government to fulfill that promise to increase defence spending in that way. Well, it's interesting. In the statement, Hunt's statement, there was obviously Labour in particular were trying to get him to commit to stand by promises that had been made either by Boris Johnson or by Liz Truss. And he wouldn't commit to any of them. And that included defence spending. Uh, it included um, spending on the health service and social care. He wouldn't really go much further than on that. He, he wouldn't commit to uprating benefits in line with inflation. 
He wouldn't commit to the triple lock on pensions. Now, I don't suspect he's going to undo all of those things, but there's no doubt whatsoever that he's going to undo some of them. Um, and as you say, that this is where he gets himself in both a very strong position, but also a very weak position. I think you said in the last podcast that when he was running to be leader, he was talking about defense spending as 4% of GDP. Exactly. Uh, he was also cutting corporation tax to 12.5%, not you know where it is now. So I think that he talked about eye-wateringly difficult decisions. Now, you know, I I really would like him to go after the tax the tax avoiders and the the you know the wealth tax and the bankers bonuses and all that stuff. I agree with you that's not going to fill the gap, which is still around about 30 billion by the way. I think the Institute of Fiscal Studies saying he's still got quite a big hole to fill. Huge hole. So it's so it's going to come from spending cuts and this is a time when the health service is on its knees, when schools are really struggling and the energy bills are going to make it worse, you know, where the police are really struggling, where the armed forces are really struggling. I mean, I think it's – I don't really see how he fills the hole in a way that's both economically palatable to the markets and politically palatable to the country. And I can't remember – I guess the last time when you really had a sense that government economic policy was being literally being designed day by day – with the markets in mind as opposed to the broader national interest in mind, was probably when we got kicked out of the ERM many, many years ago. From which famously the John Major government never recovered. So, Rory, based on all your inside knowledge of what's going on inside the Conservative Party right now, who's talking to whom? What is the future of Liz Truss? And here's one for you, which I think is may become a question. Can the Conservatives seriously think that they can produce a new prime minister out of a hat and go along to see the new king and say, I am the person now who, who, who can be given the mandate to form a government, given that the, it could fall apart with the same, uh, the same jigsaw falling apart with a new leader. Well, I guess there are two separate questions there. I mean, one is what's going on, who's doing what? And the second question is what happens if they come up with a new leader? I think it's inevitable that they have to come up with a new leader now. There's no way they can possibly win a general election under Liz Truss, and everybody senses that. And as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, they've now lost both the left of the party and the right of the party. So she never had the left of the party. The center-left mm -hmm. of the party were always against her. And a lot of the center of the party was with Rishi Sunak. Remember, she came second to Rishi Sunak in the MPs' votes. So she's going in in a weak situation, weaker situation than Boris Johnson, much weaker situation than Theresa May. But now she's beginning to lose, as you pointed out, people like John Redwood on the right, who feel that she's backtracked and U-turned on everything they were backing her for. She was somebody who voted Remain, was a loyal Cameron minister, was a loyal May minister, was a loyal Boris Johnson minister. Nobody on the right saw her as a standard bearer for Brexit or libertarian economics, really, until she got into the leadership election. And then she managed to pull off this extraordinary thing of winning over Boris Johnson, winning over Nadine Doris, winning over John Redwood, winning over all the libertarians who suddenly thought, this is the real deal. This is the person who's really going to make Brexit sing. And now everything that they believe in, massive cuts and taxes in order to power economic growth, have been thrown out the window. What they're instead going, because the thing they're obsessed with is the tax burden. They're obsessed with the fact that tax is the highest level since the 1950s and taxes have to be cut. So now Jeremy Hunt's coming, and Jeremy Hunt is absolutely their hate figure. I mean, he was the guy that was in the final two against Boris Johnson. And although he tried to 
move himself towards the Brexit side of that debate in order to win that election. Nobody believed it. They always saw him as a Remainer. And now effectively, as you've pointed out, he's prime minister. Now, what you see Liz Truss's team now desperately doing is trying to brief against many ex-ministers, people who sat at cabinet tables with me, Julian Smith, Mel Stride, Gavin Williamson. These people are now being portrayed uh, as a, a cabal of male public schoolboys coming to get her. So she's trying to play because she went to a comprehensive school. She's trying to turn the opposition to her into some sort of sexist class warfare. Gavin Williamson didn't go to a public school. No, I didn't think he did. But that's but you will have seen press spokesmen say this again and again off the record that they think these people, particularly those three, and and you're right, it's it's an unfair way of characterizing Gavin Williamson. But Grant Chaps, Grant Chaps, is he a part of the cabal? Grant Chaps is not part of that cabal. He's part of a separate cabal. So he's, he's got part this, of a Grant Chaps cabal. Yeah, and a Grant Chaps cabal revolves around this famous spreadsheet. So he he tried to take down Theresa May straight after the 2017 election. He ran all these strange intelligence operations, which sort of stuttered to a halt in the middle of 2017. He used to come up to me in the lobbies and he'd say to me, what do you think of Boris Johnson? And I'd say rude things about Boris Johnson. Or he'd say, I'm rather a supporter of Theresa May. What do you think? And try to draw me out because he believes that the way to make his amazing spreadsheet and list was to pretend to be in favor of Theresa May in order to get votes. <laughs> anyway, this spreadsheet came out again in 2019 for Boris Johnson's election. And it's, it's meant to be a fabled spreadsheet. People refer to it as a kind of Star Wars spreadsheet. And now he's running it to topple Liz Truss. And the reason why he's doing it is that she fired him. And clearly all these firings, you talked about the way that she got rid of Johnny Mercer, the way she got rid of Michael Gove, the way that she got rid of Grant Shapps. This makes a real difference. One of the reasons George Osborne, when he was editor of the Evening Standard, said that he wanted to cut up Theresa May and put her in a fridge uh, was that he felt insulted by the way that she'd sacked him. She told mm. him, apparently, that you have to go out and get to know the party better. Surely all of these people, surely they understand that they can't, maybe they do think this. I don't see how they can get rid of her and just install somebody else because they won't, they won't agree on who that somebody else should be because they're so riven. So that means, and I suspect that Grant Shapps probably thinks he's in with a shot. Uh, Badenoch thinks she's in with a shot. Penny Mordaunt, judging by her performance today, thinks she's in with a shot. They're back to where they were before they elected Liz Truss. And the public, they're just not going to wear this. So they, the only thing they can do, I think, is to find somebody who will take over. Sunak is probably the, the best place. Hunt will think he might be the best place, might be better placed as well now. Otherwise, I just I think they're destroying themselves even more if they think they can get away with another change of leadership without going to the country. If you step back and put yourself in their shoes, that argument's fine. But of course, it would be insane for them to go to the country. They're 30 points behind in the polls. Maybe they're stuck with her. No, I don't think they're stuck with her. I think they have no good options. They've just got a range of bad options. I think, as I've said before on the show, if they leave her in place, they're 100% going to lose. If they roll the dice and bring someone else in, maybe they're 90% likely but to But how lose. do they get the somebody else in? Do they have to have another leadership election where you could end up with, you know, Boris Johnson, some other crazy? Well, in, in the end, there, there are, there's the theory and there's the practice. So the theory is that she's uh, under the current rules. She's not, you're not supposed to be able to mount a leadership bid against her for another 12 months. Well, they, that can change with a, one visit from Graham Brady. 
Yeah, because the practice is, whatever the rules say on the surface, if she can't command a majority in the House of Commons, she can't keep her MPs together, she has to go. So in the end, the MPs have all the power here and they can do what they like. And it doesn't Mm. really matter the theory of the fact that the rules say there have to be 12 months or the rules say that the MPs have to create two finalists or the rules say that the party has to vote on those finalists the MPs can rewrite those rules. And I suspect what they will do is they will not want to go back to another leadership run. They're not going to want to go back to the constituency parties. They are going to try to find some sort of agreement amongst themselves. But that goes back to something we've talked about before, which is that the divisions within the Conservative Party, as you just pointed out, are so deep that what you were describing today when you were watching the statement of people like John Redwood, Richard Drax, who are on the very far Brexit right of the party, are not going to accept any of the candidates who come in. And we're going to return to a situation that will feel a bit like Theresa May Mark II. I mean, you might have you might have people in the Conservative Party, including MPs, who I get what you said before about they want to keep their jobs, it's wrapped up with their pensions and their lifestyle and their status in the community and all that stuff. You might get to a point where actually enough of them say to each say to themselves, you know, we've we've just got to go into opposition. I think that mindset is developing among some some of them already. Well, m- many of them. I mean, so an MP called me today, and what he pointed out, and he said he wanted to reprimand us on the podcast. He said that I was spending too much time saying that what they were scared of is losing their seats. He said, "You don't understand." Many of us are thoroughly fed up and have no intention of standing again. Mm. And one of the reasons why Liz Truss has no control over us is that we've made it very clear we don't want to be MPs anymore. The whole thing is horrible. The whole thing's so humiliating. We're not going to stand again. If you're a leader and you're you're part of a leadership team, which has to include the cabinet and the chancellor and all of them, um, and you've gifted a 33-point lead to a Labour Party that you'd be telling everybody isn't up to the job, then you've lost all authority. You've lost all authority. That I think a lot of MPs will be – I talked to another Tory MP the other day who told me that she was already looking around for future prospects for a career in the media. She actually was asking me to help her, a bloody Tory MP, thinking that I would help her get some work in the media. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of toying with the idea of whether I have to out her. I barely know the woman. Um, I'll probably keep that little secret just for a little bit, a little bit longer. And what about the second part of my question? I mean, can they credibly, let's just say they, they suddenly decide, right, okay, we've all, we've all got our act together and Rishi Sunak is the new prime minister. Here he is. Here's Rishi Sunak. Can Rishi Sunak credibly go off to the palace and say to the king, I'm your new prime minister, appoint me? Well, he'd have to convince the king in the same way that prime minister had to convince kings for 400 years that he can command a majority in the House of Commons. But I, I guess the constitutional precedent on that is the king will say, okay, give it a go. See if you can form a majority. And if you can't, it's going to be another government. He won't say, oh dear, oh dear, anyway, as he said to Liz Trust the other day. Um, no, I think, I think on this, um, let's take a quick break and then maybe come back and look at what all this looks like on a kind of bigger stage, on a bigger global stage. We should talk about Joe Biden um, and, tr- and his, his views on trickle dad as well, which he... I don't know if you saw him expressing his views while he licked an ice cream. That was good. That was good. Let's talk about that after the break. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. This week, the podcast is sponsored by The New European, and I have to declare an interest here. I am the editor-at-large, no less, of The New European. I write a diary every week, which the real editor assures me is much loved by our readers. Well, I love The New European. It was born uh, a week after the referendum, June the 23rd, 2016. It's still going, and it's one of a few new media titles breaking the mould of mainstream media in the UK and providing a very different perspective on the events that we're living through. And almost regardless of your politics, it's refreshing because you get a very broad picture of the arts and culture scene right across the continent and some really fascinating features in there every week. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And But for me, what The New European does better than other titles, it gives an honest, well-written analysis of what's happening to our country right now. It's the complete antidote to the corrosive nationalistic press that helped to get us into the current mess in the first place. And therefore, I would say it really deserves your support. And I promise you the front pages are worth the price of subscription alone. So they have a special offer for listeners to this podcast. It's the best offer you'll get anywhere. A full year subscription to the New European for just £1 a week. Or if, like me, you love getting the actual newspaper in your hands every week, you can get that plus full digital access for just £2 a week. That's literally half the price that you'd pay at the newsstand. And you'll be supporting a newspaper that is making a real difference to politics and to journalism. All you have to do is visit www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash T-R-I-P. That's www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash trip. So welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Um, what did you make of Joe Biden? Joe Biden stepped in. He was out campaigning. He, had a high, high, he was in an ice cream parlour. Um, I think he was getting a, a chocolate. It was a sort of light coloured chocolate ice yeah, it cream. Yeah, it looked pretty light. I thought it was more like pistachio when I looked at it. Was it, it pistachio? Know. It might have been pistachio. Um, and he, somebody threw him a question about what he thought about Liz Truss's uh, economics plan. And he, and he was very, very critical of it. And, he, of course, he had said in a different context that tr- trickle-down economics never worked. And, of course, the Tories got very upset that an American president was wading into our political debate. But then I thought, well... If you're going to, you know, during a leadership election, say Macron, friend or foe, the jury's out, then, you know, other leaders are entitled to comment on you. I think it's very, very sad that America, that an American president would try to do that. Um, I think it shows how much credibility Britain has lost that that's happening. Mm. I'd Mm. also be tempted to turn around and say, Mr. Biden, how about you look in the mirror? It's all very well saying Britain uh, is cutting taxes on the super rich, but have you looked at the US tax rates recently? If there's one country on earth that 
has low tax rates for the super rich, it's the United States. If there's one country on earth that has the deepest inequality imaginable, it's the United States. If there's one country on earth that doesn't have an adequate welfare state, it's the United States. So I might turn around and say, President Biden, perhaps you better look at your own tax rates before you start chucking stones across the Atlantic. Well, you can do that from the safety of your position as a former government minister. I think if our prime minister with her weakened authority were to do that now, I mean, I kind of agree. I I do think the sadder point is that I think if Britain was as taken as seriously in America as as we were, then he's a very, very experienced politician. He would have known how to avoid that question completely. It's normal not to get involved in doing that kind of stuff. Interestingly, he is also now um, the victim, of course, of what's happening to the economy. So I 100%, just to go on the record, believe that Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting have made the situation much, much worse. But you'll remember that I've been saying on the podcast that we're heading into a global recession, and I've been saying this for months, and I think it's a, sadly, I think it's a 10-year recession. And the economic figures out of the United States are not good at all. They've now got 8.2% CPI inflation in September, food Mm. prices skyrocketing, and US voters are now punishing the government that's in power. So the conservatives probably would have been punished pretty hard, even without the the ludicrous stuff that Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did. Mm. Because American voters have gone from 36% who thought the economy was the most important issue to 44% in a month. And the polls have turned around. Do you remember we were saying that Biden was actually in quite a good position? Mm. He was leading in the polls a month ago. He's now three to four points behind on most of the polls on likely voters. And the Republicans are in a much stronger position because, of course, he is going to end up taking um, the responsibility for the economic pain that Americans are experiencing. Mm. Although the, I don't think the midterms are going to be quite as catastrophic as people were saying maybe a year ago because he he's you know, they're obsessed with fuel prices and he's done reasonably well on that up until the recent day march with Mohammed bin Salman. But I think that, uh, you know, don't forget as well, we don't we don't yet know who is going to be up against whoever shall be the Democrat. We could we could end up with two very, very different people, somebody we haven't even thought of in, on, in both places. Yeah, I think I think sadly, these polls and the way the economy is going suggests that he will lose both the Senate and the House in the midterms, definitely. Mm. And I think, even though, as we've said in the podcast before, actually, this is a, a race which, for accidental reasons, has more Republican seats up. Uh, and some of these people are very disturbing. Again, as we said, there's a couple of Senate candidates and one governor candidate who refuse to say they will accept the results of the elections. Yeah, There are these pro-Trump candidates coming through. Um, quite a good story, I mean, for those of us who are trying to get onto your story about post-truth and populism, which is this billion-dollar decision against Alex Jones, who was the guy that uh, put out the fake news, the conspiracy theory about that Sandy Hook shooting. Mm. Remember that he'd said the whole thing had been staged as a, yeah. as a plot by people to try to bring in gun control. And he's now got this record award against him. It's almost a billion dollars. Yeah, almost a billion dollars, which apparently he doesn't have. I think that's quite good news in a way, though. Very good news. I think that, you know, those people, they've done so much damage to not just America. I mean, that book I mentioned, Christopher Wiley's book, Mindfuck, I'm I'm just onto the bit where Steve Bannon is is beginning to motor in terms of, you know, going around the world, getting involved with the Brexit campaign, getting involved with Trump, um, and a lot of it based on these kind of, you know, information information warfare um, with this yet another. Did you know Alexander Nix, the yet another old Etonian who's helped to yeah, destroy yeah, yeah, our yeah, country? Yeah, saving destroy the country. I agree. Did you yeah. know him? 
I didn't know him, no, but I knew that he'd gone to Eton. Yeah. But yeah. I, I have to, I, as I keep saying to you, George Orwell, that's what I say to you all the time. Yeah, now, I know. You've got, one, you've got one good one. Now, listen, what about, have you been following this story in Japan? I mean, uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister, his, his assassination. And we talked, if you remember, about there was this suggestion that it was all because of his family's um, a, a history involving the unific- unification church, the Moonies. And it sort of rumbled on and on and on and on. And now the new prime minister, Kishida, Fumio Kishida, he's ordered a, an official inquiry into the church because the, the scandal is sort of deepening and the links between his party and, this, and the Moonies is, is, seems to be getting deeper. So I, I, I just I think when it's when it first, these rumors first started, we thought, well, this is just another kind of you know post truth sort of fake news nonsense. But we now have the prime minister demanding an official inquiry into the links between his own party and the Moonies. Hundreds of his MPs. Um, another thing that struck me. I mean, I I don't know much about Japanese politics, and I maybe I, I'm sure there'll be many hundreds of listeners, the rest of politics, who can inform us. But one of the things that strikes me is we talk a lot about the way in which British politics seems to be overly dominated by people who went to Eton. But Japanese politics is extraordinary. I mean, every time I look into the backgrounds of any of these Japanese prime ministers, <laughs> they <laughs> seem to have parents who are ministers, grandparents who are prime mm. ministers. I mean, in the case of, of, of um, some of them, you know, right the way back to a samurai uh, in the case of a recent candidate to be mayor of Tokyo, I think he's descended from a princely family that goes back to the 10th century. And the current mm. prime minister, um, you know, it, again, is his father and his grandfather were, were were politicians. His cousin is the minister of economy, trade and industry. And another former prime minister is a relative of his. And that particular prime minister was was also, you know, the son of a politician. This is Kichi Miyazawa. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'd, I'd like someone on listening to the show to tell us whether the whole of Japan is run by these sort of aristocratic princely samurai families under the cover of a democracy. <laughs> I, I, I always liked going to Japan. I don't know. I, I always enjoyed our trips to, to Japan, and, and, and partly their sort of <laughs> the, the politeness is genuine. It's real. Um, but I, I'll, I'll tell you a, a very funny story about. Um, G8 war stories Gone involving a Japanese prime minister. This is one that we were actually hosting in Western Park in the Midlands in 1998, and it became very newsworthy. For The, the main reason was that Clinton and Chrétien, the prime minister of Canada, they actually went off for a walk without telling the Secret Service where they were going, and they, 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 they climbed a fence, <laughs> and the Secret Service, they lost them for a few minutes, which, of course, with the hundreds of American Secret Service had sent them into a blind paddock. But I must tell you this story about a Japanese prime minister. It was um, Hashimoto. Okay. And it was the day that Newcastle United, that's a football team, Rory, they were, play, they were playing Liverpool in the FA Cup final. And I suggested to Tony, who is a Newcastle supporter, I'd got Kenny Dalglish, who was the, Liverpool, the Newcastle manager, and I got Tony to, to write him a good luck message which we then sent down to Wembley and was given to Kenny Dalglish before the, before the match. But as Tony was writing this letter, Hashimoto came into the room and he said through the interpreter, what are you doing? And we explained that he was sending a good luck message to Kenny Dalglish, the manager of Newcastle United, at which point Hashimoto said, well, I should do that as well. 
So we tried to explain that. Anyway, it got too complicated. <laughs> so I don't know whether Kenny Dalglish ever got it, but Hashimoto sat there and sent him a good luck message to beat Liverpool, which they didn't do. Well, so here we are. So uh, Hashimoto is interesting. So Hashimoto's father was also a cabinet minister, <laughs> a cabinet minister <laughs> under Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi. And Nobusuke Kishi was a man who was known as the monster of the Showa era because of his rule of the puppet state of Manchukuo in northeast China, and was imprisoned for three years as a suspected Class A war criminal. And was his father a politician? Yeah, yes, he's also a man whose old his younger brother went on to be prime minister, whose, whose older brother was the vice admiral of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and is descended from an illustrious samurai family. So we've talked talked about it a little bit before, but it is extraordinary. I, I can I, I do want to know whether we can find a Japanese prime minister who doesn't seem to be deeply embedded in a whole sort of aristocratic political cabal. Having said you don't know much about Japanese politics, did you just Google Japanese prime ministers and their relatives. Yes, I'm just very, very quick at Google while you're talking. Did you? Did you? You, you didn't. Know, that was not in your. That wasn't in your head. No, that's it? not in my head at all. No, no, no. That's in fact. I realised when I was talking to you that I'd actually been talking about one of these guys on a previous podcast, and I barely remembered that Nobusuke Kishi is exactly who we were talking about a few weeks ago. That's how daft I'm getting. Okay. Well, I, I, I must admit, I didn't Google. I just went to page 302 of the Blair, the bestseller, the Blair Years, extracts from the Alistair Campbell Diaries. But I did enjoy Mr. Hashimoto. And then we had another, we had another prime minister that I sort of persuaded to, 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 to write, to do a bit of an apology about the treatment of our prisoners of war. But that went wrong because after he'd done the apology, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so yeah, I've got some very fond memories of Japan. But I, I, you, you are right. Whenever you look at, whenever you look up the top level Japanese politicians, there's usually a quite a heritage. Um, just one thing to finish on, on a maybe slightly gloomier note. Um, after your jollity about about Newcastle United, I'm I'm in Malawi, and mm-hmm. one of the things that is very striking, and maybe it's been reported, but I haven't seen that much emphasis on it, is the way in which this global economic recession, and particular a debt crisis is destroying African economies. So here in Malawi, like many other economies in sub-Saharan Africa, they are incredibly exposed on debt. Some of that is Chinese lending. So we can talk Mm -hmm. about that maybe in a future podcast. A lot of the Chinese lending was done on, um, not on fixed, but flexible interest rates. And we are going to find ourselves very sadly back in the situation that you found yourselves in with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, you know, 25 years ago, which is we're going to have to look at debt forgiveness again, because... Mm some of the poorest countries in the world are now um, crippled by debts that they can't possibly service. In other words, what we're finding, and and it it couldn't come at a worse moment, because of course, when you were doing things to help those countries in the early 2000s, the British economy was performing well. We're now in a situation where the need and the extreme poverty uh, in the world has never been greater. It will get worse. Climate change will probably add another 100, 200 million people to the extreme poor. But Mm. it's at a time when in Europe and in the United States, People are going to feel, with a recession coming on, very short of money and very reluctant to help. Well, the other big difference then is that we had a Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and a Chancellor, Gordon Brown, who were absolutely kind of mildly obsessed with the whole issue of debt write-off and development. And now we have uh, a former Prime Minister who got rid of your old department, Department for International Development. Um, you probably saw this, heard this morning the 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 famine crisis in Somalia at the moment, where basically the Americans are uh, lifting the whole load in terms of any relief there that the UK is 
committing a fraction of what it would have done under the good old days of DFID. And you're right to highlight climate change as well. I think the the last meeting of the the the, the, the last production of the African Economic Outlook focused hugely on the impact of climate change and the, the effect that's going to have on their economies. And it's so so sad because partly this is driven by what's happened to interest rates. Partly it's driven by COVID, which had an horrifying effects on African economies. Um, but but as you say, whereas in those days, as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were obsessed with this subject, I don't think I've seen any politician from any party talking about Africa's growing debt burden and how on earth mm. it's supposed to survive. Although I did see, I did see Labour committing to re- the re-establishment of DFID. Which is really good news. And, and, uh, but, and, and I also think Keir Starmer, when we interviewed him, committed to increasing spending back to the 0.7%. But the, the problem with all these spending commitments at the moment is, is financing them. Jolly good. Well, there we are. We've ended on a glum note. Um, but we can hopefully raise the mood with our Q&A, which we've already recorded because we did things the wrong way around. The one thing I'm disappointed we haven't had time to cover off is the Nicola Sturgeon statement today about the economy and the independent Scotland, which I think was quite interesting, but we probably should save that for a rainy day. Very good. Well, good night, Alistair. Thank you for the call. All the best. (laughs) 